Welcome to the Optimum Podcast. I'm Richard Staines, and I'm here with my colleague Eva in what's going to be the first in a series of discussions about topics relevant to the biotech and life sciences community. And we'd love to hear from you if you have any suggestions for issues we can cover. We're going to talk about the state of investment in the UK biotech sector. And we've got some really interesting data that's come out from the Bio Industry Association, which is, as it says, the the trade body for biotechs in the UK, life sciences trade body, and Clarivate, which is obviously a well-respected business information firm. And the positive news is actually that despite this global market downturn, the figures say that UK headquartered life sciences and biotech companies secured $382 million in VC and public financing. And that's up 29% from the previous quarter's $295 million. Other findings are the sector continues to experience a robust flow of VC deals between March and end of May. Uh, there was 26, totaling 338 million, average size of 13 million. It's also pointing out a healthy spread of investment between early and late stage private companies, seed investment after a sluggish start to the year. IPO activity, unfortunately, is stagnant, but that's no surprise, really, because, you know, I can't even remember. What is an IPO? It seems like just one of those things that used to happen in like the dark ages or something. And UK companies raising following on uh, financing is also facing challenges. There's only 44 million this quarter, but which is showing signs of improvement compared to the previous quarter's 37 million. So Eva, you know, we've got a good sort of background there, but how would you, in your opinion, characterize the investment environment in 2023 um, and perhaps the things panning out better than we may have expected at the start of the year? I would say during 2023, you know, yes, we have seen robustness on the venture side, you know, with even funds raising new money. I think uh, the BIA referred to Medici raising a new sort of 400 million fund, and there have been lots of others. And obviously that's fresh cash to deploy. So the, the sort of early stage side of things is very healthy. And then on the markets, it's been a lot more difficult. I looked up earlier on and the uh, MBA, which is the sort of US biotech index, has um, underperformed the S&P 500, which is the broader market, by about 20%. The AIM All Share, which obviously isn't just biotechs or biopharma or life sciences, has underperformed the FTSE All Share by about 15%. So markets have been very, very tough. And I think it's part of the sort of whole risk off that you get with geopolitical upheaval that we've had, which is very often binary from the point of view that it's, you know, you get knee-jerk reactions to stuff that you couldn't have predicted. And then it takes a while for everyone to recover from that and or, you know, see those things resolve themselves. So I think the only thing one can say to people in terms of the listed ciders, you know, have patience. We've seen this before. It will come back, especially with a sort of thriving private side. Yes, I think it has been difficult for new companies to get new investors on board because they've been focused on shepherding their own portfolio companies and seeing that they are well funded, given the uh, difficulty in terms of exits via IPO anyway. But it's still pretty healthy. Did we foresee that? I think, yes, to some extent in the last year, people, you know, were still quite sanguine on the VC side. In terms of the markets, everyone's usually 
very, very pessimistic. And then we tend to outperform that a little bit eventually. Last year at the Optimum Conference, we had um, Damahoney and, and Gareth Powell kind of talking about the future based on the, the decades of experience that they'd had. And uh, when put on the block to say when they thought things would recover, they sort of came up with something along the lines of Q3 this year through to just after JP Morgan next year. And right now, that kind of looks about right. There have been some encouraging signs, you know, Argenics raising, what was it, 700 million. There's reasons to be cheerful still, and people need to stick to the knitting, keep focused on executing, and then eventually they'll they'll get the credit for that. So do you think the thing that will um, make everybody go, aha, uh-huh. uh-huh, is the, probably the first IPO, wouldn't you say? Or that would be the thing that makes so many people go, oh, look. Maybe things are really tight. I think there's been a, a few smallish IPOs, probably more over in the US, not notably large numbers. So I don't think it's going to be the first IPO, but I think once we've got more of a, a trickle, then I think things will, will start looking up. The whole backdrop of cost of living and prices and all that sort of thing doesn't help in terms of getting an investment in either. So coming out of that would be helpful too but it's a little bit difficult to see right now when when that's going to happen so in terms of like research areas have there been any kind of i suppose hotter areas can we say hot in the current situation but has there been anything that has been drawing in the investment uh, in 2023 in 2023 undoubtedly obviously um so-called ai although i prefer to call it machine learning that's both on the sort of broader side but particularly also in healthcare in terms of doing everything from you know accelerating and improving the efficiency of research through to improved clinical trial design execution and making clinical trials faster so that's definitely one area it's probably obvious to everyone Neurodegenerative diseases, obviously we've had some excitement with some of the Alzheimer's therapies, the initial Alzheimer's therapies being approved. Obviously, there's still a lot of work to do there because they only work in early patients to some extent. So it's difficult to define those. And then some of the old faithfuls, as it were, you know, antibody drug conjugates and so-called smart chemotherapies or smart radiotherapies, still mRNA, still oncology, still immuno-oncology, and also moving on from just the sort of checkpoint inhibitors to trying to expand where those therapies can be used. Because, you know, I think the the uh, well-known sort of factoid is that about 30% or so of patients respond to the checkpoints. And if you don't, then you don't. So there's still plenty of patients to go for there to try and get these therapies to work with everything from things like host defense peptides or things that mimic almost an infection if you will and but managed to target the cancer and then not just specific cancer cells with certain targets on them but also with bystander effect and so on so they're more efficient at killing the tumor including metastases potentially so that's an exciting area i think also fixing or solving some of the bottlenecks with exciting modalities that we already have so improving the delivery of your mRNAs your gene therapies and so on so that you can move some of those from the liquid tumors into the solid tumors where we haven't had quite as much success or very little success 
And then I guess, you know, vaccines, obviously, because of COVID, have seen an, an increased profile, not just COVID vaccines themselves, but there's been possibly this might just be attention and it was always going on. But, you know, movement and progress in the fields of uh, RSV and flu. And I think rare diseases are still a thing. Yeah. They lend themselves to targeted therapies to some extent. So, yeah, rare diseases, just so they're still holding up. What do you think that is? Just the usual sort of driving force, but is it forces behind there, the regulatory benefits you can get from doing the research? I think regulatory also, the attractiveness to investors from the point of view of pretty good pricing. But I think also, as we increasingly look to select and treat the right patients for therapies, that then kind of, I won't call it rabbit hole, but that then takes you more towards subpopulations that can sometimes be rare. So I, I guess I'm talking about subpopulations of patients as well, where there's a, a rationale as to why a therapy that might not have worked in the broader population is actually going to be really helpful. And we have been seeing more of that. Great stuff. And are there any areas of research that have been not so fruitful or in need of investment, do you think? Well, I think in terms of needing investment, obviously... Um, anti-infectives. I think we've seen an uptick there, but it's been something that we've needed for a long time and we still need. And uh, it was brought to the fore with the pandemic, but it does still need structured and well-designed investing in that I think governments are going to have to help get involved there. And you you know, you know, do have some specialist funds there run by some of the, the big houses, like Novo, obviously. I wouldn't say it's not been fruitful because it has. I think we've got improvements coming there and we just need more of that and then trying to think hard about coming up with something that was a bit more original (laughs) that people might have not thought about and I I came up with NASH so um, non-alcoholic steato hepatitis it's got a new name now hasn't it you know it's called MASH now they call it MASH apparently (laughs) (laughs) okay MASH um (laughs) That was a a sort of indication that people were very, very excited about, you know, going back a year or two, we were going to have a massive amount of drugs in a huge market. And it probably still is a huge market, but partially that's because um, quite a few of the drugs in development for that have failed. And that's partially been patient selection and clinical studies and the fact that it's a an evolution of how the patients progress and patients that are early stage can look quite different to the later stage patients and you need to select very carefully which patients you need to go for for where where your drug's going to be most appropriate and most effective and um, that's possibly not been done quite so well just yet I'm sure we'll get there yeah there's been a lot of setbacks with MASH or NASH or whatever you want to call it it's just been you know five years ago it looked like it was just going to be huge and and now it's proving a lot more difficult The next question I had was just about geopolitical issues, but I mean, there's some obvious things, you know, the whole Ukraine situation and all of this kind of stuff that's um, preoccupying us so much. What impacts that having on the biotech market? I think it's combined with this sort of after effect of the pandemic. It's definitely, you know, affected clinical trials, recruitment and speed thereof, and access to patients, drug supply and distribution. And then we have the separate issue of the sort of risk-off attitude of investors. Fairly obvious things. And I guess it's that cloud of uncertainty that, you know, 
you've got to be a very, very smart person, possibly using machine learning to work out when we're going to get out of those problems. Yeah, there's no, no end in sight really for it. I think it's the kind of thing that's just going to, tragically, I guess, is just going to drag on for quite some time in the ukraine seems to be a stalemate well there'll be workarounds in terms of clinical trials um mm. and obviously efforts are being made to run them elsewhere for those who had clinical trials ongoing in in those regions it's just one of those things that you have to work around and deal with as best one can yeah and so what what advice finally i think the last question i have you know if claravates to be believed then perhaps things are not so bad for, you know, the very early stage companies. What advice would you have for anyone launching a biotech in 2023? Some pretty obvious things, you know, have not just a plan A, but also B, C, D. Raise as much money as you possibly can. That way you have a sort of war chest to keep you going or refocus if you need to. Define your differentiation. You really do need to be differentiated and innovative. And also have a clear plan and pathway through development and stick to that and communicate it. And then also on the communication side, decide what you want to communicate on and then do that. Otherwise, other people will take the agenda off you and measure you how they want to. Whereas if you're communicating, then you control the narrative. Absolutely. Great stuff. This has been a really uh, interesting chat. And what we can do is, you know, we're going to put an email address at the bottom where anybody who's got some ideas about what we've just discussed can get in touch. You know, if you've got any suggestions for what we can talk about next, if there's something that's related, you can send us in ideas. Um, We've got something lined up already about clinical trials, but if there's something else that you think would be a good topic, then we'd love to hear from you. That's great, Ava. Thanks ever so much. Thank you.